There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Tuesday, November 7th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the Dictionary of American Regional English is no more. The lexicographers who run the dictionary ran out of funding. In a quite clever write-up in the Wall Street Journal, they report that University of Wisconsin English professor Frederick Cassidy launched the project in 1962, lauded as, quote, the greatest American lexicographical project of the latter half of the 20th century. Quite a lot of qualifications there, huh? By the American Dialect Society, it aimed to capture the nation's regional words, pronunciation, and syntax. The dictionary begins with AA, which I guess pronounced ah, which means a rough lava in Hawaiian, and moves steadily through fuzzy wog, which is a roll of dust under furniture in Wisconsin. Although if a Wisconsinite were in Minnesota and saw a fuzzy wog, they'd call it by that too. And a rap jacket, which is a contest of endurance in which people beat one another with switches in the South. Although I think that maybe a bunch of Southerners were pulling a gag on a professor from Wisconsin saying, oh yeah, that was a, uh, that, that was a thing called a rap jacket when really they were just beating the hell out of Earl. Here are some other phrases that the journal noted. Uh, In Vermont, they have a griddle, which is a cooking surface. I call it that too. They also have leaf peepers, which is a tourist who looks at foliage. And heavy rain from toad strangler in the Gulf states to turd floater in Texas to gully washer out west. Other regionalisms are less well known. There's, of course, the tush tickler, the French beeper, A crow's girdle. (laughs) I remember crow's girdle from when I was a kid. I also remember I spent a summer in West Virginia once and everyone there wanted to go down to the neighborhood dirt palace. And I'd said, huh? But they said, you know, the dirt palace, the gunky bucket. It's like a Canadian pocket watch, but bigger. And I'd say, oh, you mean a weasel's mustache? Whatever. We'd all go and it'd be hotter than Ampetunia's special sauce, if you know what I'm saying. Or even, and this is when the sun was setting and you could hear those perch snatchers a-flirping away. It was better than a talking to from old man McGillicuddy's podiatrist. So goodbye, regional dictionary. I suppose from now on, we won't be able to wet your underbrush or fire up the old kangaroo theocracy. But that doesn't make the time that you were with us any less special than a rogue entomologist caught in the lieutenant's arboretum. On the show today, I spiel about a story about Harvey Weinstein, what it says about journalism. But first, Theodore Johnson has a sparkling resume. He's a retired naval officer, a lawyer, professor. He wrote speeches for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As a black man and a veteran and a scholar, he has a lot to say about patriotism and the black experience. And luckily, I have a microphone and you have earbuds. If then, a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Remus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job, to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With newsmaking interviews of high-tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top-tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases. Damn it, I thought it would be another I word. So again, it's ideas, ideologies, incentives, and sadly enough, biases at the end of that string of eyes. But all of those things. And guess what? 
April and Will sometimes argue. I like when that happens on a podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. When Colin Kaepernick didn't stand, he didn't actually kneel at first. He was just sitting down during the national anthem. For a couple games, no one even noticed. Then when asked about it, he said he was doing it because of his consciousness as a black American and his concern about the over-policing of black communities. In fact, the NFL players who have been involved in the protest have been really consistent about what their aims are. And if you question what they are, four of them wrote a letter to Roger Goodell, which seems to be animating their movement. They want to leverage their celebrity and wealth to raise issues about the black community. However, the form of protest, kneeling or at least not participating during the national anthem, brought blowback and the commander-in-chief was the one blowing the hardest. Joining me now is Theodore Johnson, Ted Johnson, maybe I can call him. He is (laughs) a professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University and also a fellow of the New America Foundation, a doctor of law and a Navy officer, retired Navy officer. Hello, Ted. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the anthem protest. What do you feel as a military man, but also someone who is an expert on race relations? What do, what do you feel uh, when you see players kneeling during the anthem? My initial inclination is to sort of recoil a bit, and that's mm-hmm. because uh, of 20 years of indoctrination into military customs and culture, um, which I readily continue to hold on to. Even now when the anthem plays, I'm not one of the guys with the hand over the heart. I'm still standing at the position of attention in my you know, jogging pants and T-shirts. Um, but also as a black man, I understand exactly what they're talking about. I, you know, I've been pulled over by police and cuffed and had my car searched because of a blown headlight. Um, I've experienced racism. I've been trailed in Macy's department stores and uniform. So I I understand both sides. Um, what I can't stand is the, uh, the the framing around the issue that because the players are, are protesting peacefully to draw attention to racial injustice, that somehow they're disrespecting veterans in the process, that they're expressing a hatred of country and a disrespect towards the flag, our anthem and our customs. I think the two things are, are, are not at all related. So it's it's sort of in, in order to change the subject, you place the frame around patriotism and veterans, and that way you don't have to talk about racial injustice at all. You just talk about these ungrateful black millionaires who don't know what loving America feels like. Right. And the NFL's chief among those who've advanced the idea that the anthem and the military go hand in hand. It's just not a factual assertion. It only feels that way. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, and there is a U.S. code that outlines what disrespect for the flag looks like. And kneeling is not one of the things called out. Yep. However, having the flag on a Speedo as a piece of apparel, as, as a Houston Astros player recently did, that's actually called out. Displaying the flag horizontally instead of vertically on a pole, like the NFL does before every game when they send out a bunch of people to ripple the flag over a 100-yard football field, is actually spelled out as a sign of disrespect. 
There is a school of thought, I've heard Jason Whitlock of Fox say this, that they chose the wrong form of protest. To get their point across, kneeling during the anthem is so explosive or radioactive, it's hard for people to even have an open mind about what you do after that. What do you think of that uh, form of argument? I completely disagree. What is the acceptable form? I mean, in, in the 60s, the, the civil rights marchers were in their Sunday best clothes with marching permits to be in the appointed place and time where the march took place, and they were hit with fire hoses and German shepherds. There is no form of acceptable protest. So whether Black Lives Matter are blocking highways or they're conducting die-ins on campus, no matter what they do, the problem is never the method of protest. It's it's the issue they're trying to draw attention to and the people that are doing the, the that are conducting the protest, not the the method of protest itself. So on the one hand, I totally agree that protests aren't supposed to comfort the people who or the situation you're protesting against. On the other hand, if a protest is a form of dialogue, perhaps the case can be made that the protesters could have or didn't foresee the almost Pavlovian and I think very understandable uh, reaction that their protest engendered. Um, we fight to protect and defend the Constitution, but we are bound by rules above and beyond the Constitution. The American public is not. And so if you feel disrespected because the American public doesn't uh, attend to the same customs and, and code of conduct that you voluntarily agree to as an active duty member of the military, then um, I think you're, you're, you're shortchanging the very thing you're fighting for. We are a nation that is losing faith in our institutions except the military, which still holds approval ratings and the, you know, upwards of 75, 80%, whereas everything else is, yeah. is like 20 or below. It is the most uh, approved so, of institution in America. I mean, in all the, the country, polling right. firms, they poll, you know, what used to be pretty <laughs> held in pretty high regard was the NFL, which mm, brings me to, which brings me to my question. It, it is clear to you and I what Trump is doing and why he is using it as an issue. Do you think the effectiveness of what he's been doing? And I think it's, I mean, if you look at the ratings, they are down and they are down a bit since last year. And there is at least a lot of anecdotal evidence of people saying that I'm turning my back on the NFL if eight guys are going to kneel during the anthem. Are you at all surprised by the, let's put it in quotes, but the effectiveness such as it has been? That doesn't surprise me at all. The fact that very few Republicans have taken him to task for this tactic um, is what I'm most surprised about. And, and frankly, I'm almost surprised that I am as surprised as, as, as I am. Mm -hmm. um, that the tactic is certainly when it delivers elections, people tend to be quiet publicly and will express their concern privately. Um, but this, I thought, was above and beyond the pale and, and the silence um, has been deafening. Well, because I think it's not a salient issue that Republicans think their voters are going to hurt them for. Yeah, I agree. And so, and, and, and this is kind of where we come full circle in this. I mean, these are the folks saying that you are denigrating the flag, our nation, our principles, our troops when you kneel for the anthem. But if you're silent on explicit racism, somehow that's acceptable because you have an election to win. You know, leave the patriotism out of this if you're unwilling to stand up against someone in your party just because you're afraid of not getting elected. And, and save me the courageous remarks um, when you decide not to run for re-election and suddenly these things are repulsive and immoral and you can't stand quietly by anymore. You know, show me the guy that says those things and show me the, the woman who says those things and then runs for reelection on 
the message of one nation where racial racism and racial disparities and discrimination are unacceptable, then we can talk about courage and citing the, the valor of the troops and, and denigrating the, our, our ideals. Members of the military are more conservative than the public at large. But what about racism? Um, do the white people in the military, in your experience or through your study, are they less racist than other white Americans? That's a that's a really tough question. Uh, so in my initial reaction is absolutely. And it's because people in the military orcs are exposed to more customs, cultures, ethnicities, races routinely than probably most people in America. But racism isn't just about what you feel in your heart. Arguably, racism is really about the systems and institutions mm -hmm. that enforce favor on one race over another simply because of the race uh, that they are. In that regard, the military is much like America. I will say that a recent poll just came out that shows the majority of military officers actually disprove of President Trump. That's pretty significant because the military is a conservative institution, especially the officer corps. That same poll came out and, and said that members of the military across racial lines believe that white nationalism is more of a threat to the country than Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, that's this because some of them have been there and they know that they know that we've made a boogeyman out of uh, some of those places, dangerous as it is. That's right. Right. And so and the fact that white nationalism uh, in domestically here is seen as a threat to the United States by people who fight overseas should tell you something. I mean, if one thing the military folks know, it's their history. And the only thing that's ever dismantled the union is the question about whether black people in the United States should be Americans. We went to war over that question, assassinated a president over that question. Military members are, and over 600,000 soldiers died uh, in that war. We're, we're familiar with how terrible racism can be and what it can do to the country. So in your writing about how Donald Trump has used racist racial appeals for years, 10 years, 20 years, I think the notion was that much of the explicit acknowledged racism was abating in society. Perhaps it was under the surface, but there was right. still the dog whistle racism, which is, and this is the phrase that people would use, just as insidious. Well, now that we see the return of the explicit racism, do you right. think the dog whistle racism is just as insidious? Or in some ways, do you think that maybe you can make the case that explicit racism and, you know, not speaking out against the Klan actually makes dog whistle racism more potent. Uh, I would prefer dog whistle racism to what we have now. Now we're battling over who is America for? It yeah. used to welcome immigrants to some extent. Now there's a war on immigrants. You know, it used to accept a colorblind policy that didn't account for racial uh, differences. Now it explicitly says racial differences are bad for the nation. So we are definitely worse off as, as people become emboldened to, uh, to show and showcase their racial hatred. Now, there's one last uh, strain of questions I want to ask you, and it's about the idea of the black community and double consciousness. W.B. Du Bois mm. wrote this particular sensation, the double consciousness, sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. There is a lot of conversation in the mainstream of uh, black thought about, well, I'll read you the title of a Charles Blow, New York Times columnist headline, The mm. Flag is Drenched with Our Blood. In that column, Blow, Charles Blow says... Patriotism can be a paradox. What do you think of that statement? Without a doubt. Patriotism is absolutely a paradox. If you look at black veterans, time immemorial, since the inception of, of our nation, 
many of them fought for a country that they would never experience freedom in. That's a paradox. Um, these, these sorts of varying views within the black community is as old as the black community. Du Bois was an ardent critic of Booker T. Washington. Du Bois felt education and access to all of America should be required immediately, whereas Washington said, we can be separate from now as long as white America allows us to at least be self-sufficient economically. These disagreements within black America are normal. This is par for the course. The problem is that the perception of black America being this monolith that we all think the same, want the same things, believe the same, have the same characters and ideas and visions for America is actually harmful to the individual agency of black people. And so when me and Charles Blow, let's say we have a, a vehement disagreement on the nuances of whether you should salute the flag or not, that is a great debate to have. The problem is the nation sort of looks at two black people arguing and says, OK, which one is the authentically black one and which one is the Uncle Tom? So, so I know how, how to come out on this. If Clarence Thomas disagrees with Barack Obama on something, we find the, the, the Uncle Tom and then we agree with the other guy. And that really undermines and undercuts the diversity of opinion and political views within black America that adds a richness to our culture and to the nation that we're squandering by just trying to package black people into a herd of public opinion who always want more government interference and, and handouts and wants to vote for whoever the Democratic person is, no matter the policy. Uh, that's that. That's one of the perceptions that I've been – one of the reasons I left the military was to, uh, to draw more attention to the diversity of thought within black America and how the nation can learn from that. Yes, and I acknowledge that it is wrong to set up uh, either side as a straw man and to say that one is the good side and one is the bad side. But I do really want to know, do you – someone – Maybe in your family or a friend says, well, I, I can't get into patriotism. I'm, I'm sure you right. say, okay, I understand your reasons why. But if they would come to you and say, hey, why should I salute the flag given the history of what America's done for black people? Uh, would you make the case that they should? And what would you say? I wouldn't. I would tell them to follow, you know, the, again, as many veterans have said, the whole point of our service is so that people can express their, their First Amendment. The only thing I would ask them to do is whatever decision you make, make sure it's, you've come to that decision and you're not just following some in someone's footsteps without really understanding the action you're taking. If they feel so inclined to kneel, I would not talk them out of the, of, of the gesture. I would fully support their right to do so. That's the whole point of service. Theodore Johnson is a retired Navy officer, a professor at Georgetown University School of Law, fellow at the New America Foundation, was speechwriter for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm sure I've forgotten some of your credentials, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career. 
where uh, I got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Ronan Farrow has more details in The New Yorker about the lengths that Harvey Weinstein did to cover up his misdeeds. In fact, to intimidate those that he transgressed against. Weinstein, through his lawyer, David Boyes, hired a firm called Black Cube. You may have guessed a firm with a name literally synonymous with sharp corners and an inability to be seen through you might guess they wouldn't offer comment for the article. But Ronan Farrow found out anyway. Black Cube used investigative agents, including former Israeli Mossad agents, to adopt personas and to essentially work Weinstein accusers. There was a woman by the name of Diana Phillip. She worked for a big financial firm in England, and she contacted actress Rose McGowan. You're brave, she said. My firm is launching an initiative to combat discrimination against women in the workplace. And we want you there. We want you there at our conference as a vocal women's rights advocate. And they offered her $60,000 to speak at a gala kickoff event. And they had several meetings. McGowan met another member of her firm and Diana Phillip got some information from McGowan. Like, what other reporters are you talking to? And who else might be accusing Harvey Weinstein? You're so brave what you're doing. We're so behind you. There was no Diana Phillip. This is from a contract, contract Weinstein had with Black Cube, quote, a full-time agent by the name of Anna, herein after the agent, who will be based in New York and Los Angeles as per the client's instructions, and who will be available full-time to assist the client and his attorneys for the next four months. You thought the plot of Grindhouse was far-fetched. The New Yorker also ties in Weinstein's use of Dylan Howard, the chief content officer of American Media Inc., which publishes the National Enquirer. He would do investigations or have a reporter do reporting and then report back to Weinstein what he found, trying to smear Rose McGowan. Enquirer staff and Weinstein would email back and forth, congratulating themselves on the killer material they had to hurt McGowan. And what the material was, was critical quotes from an ex-wife of a director that she dated, which of course is no bearing on if she was raped. Dylan Howard of the Enquirer emailed Weinstein about the ex-wife, Ronan Farrow, prints that. And uh, Howard writes, she laid into Rose pretty hard. And Weinstein replies, this is killer, especially if my fingerprints are not on this. By the way, the last time the name Dylan Howard appeared in The New Yorker was in Jeffrey Tubin's article about The Inquirer and Donald Trump. Let me read you a key graph. Throughout the 2016 presidential race, The Inquirer embraced Trump with sycophantic fervor. The magazine made its first political endorsement ever of Trump last spring. Cover headlines promised Donald Trump's revenge on Hillary and her puppets and top secret plan inside how Trump will win debate. The publication 
Nation trashed Trump's rivals, running a dubious cover story on Ted Cruz that described him as a philanderer and another highly questionable piece that linked Cruz's father to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And of course, when they did that, Trump quoted it and it became a campaign issue. When I read about the Inquirer and Trump and Weinstein, a thought hit me. Weinstein, Trump, the entire effort to hire Mossad agents to suppress publication of facts, it shows to what extent that these manipulative blowhard titans value the media, value old media, media produced by, if not fact checker, at least scrutinized by lawyer media. For all the usefulness of social media to disseminate a message, whether the message is go see this movie or believe that Uranium One mattered, actual fact-based media, these guys realize is so important that they go to all lengths to court and shape and control it. The Congress was just investigating the Russians and their ads that influenced the election, and they should be investigating that. And that was an attempt by a foreign power to affect our democracy. You know, a big takeaway was that uh, Facebook put an estimate of 126 million people who saw the posts. And that's big. That's bad. Consider Fox for a second. Fox is not Russian. It's often not real. But it is old media and it is useful at disseminating information. Every night, Hannity gets 3 million viewers. In 2016, Fox was the number one channel in all of cable news, higher than ESPN, higher than A&E and The Walking Dead. Fox News averaged almost 2.5 million viewers a night. If you translate that into impressions, right, so you go apples to apples, we're talking about just about every American. We're talking about millions and millions more impressions than any one ad has. And it's not just an impression, it's repetition. Both Trump and Weinstein rely on lies. For Weinstein, they're lies of omission, keeping these stories out of the press. For Trump, they're usually lies of commission. But it wasn't Twitter bots or false flag Facebook groups that breathed life into their lies. It was mainstream media. Yeah, the widest definition of mainstream. But, you know, The Inquirer and Fox have massive audiences. The lengths that moguls will go to to shape the narrative of mainstream media is one indication that the old school gatekeepers are not totally irrelevant just yet. And that's it for today's show. Today, Pierre Benhamé produced the gist, or we assume it was Pierre Benhamé, could have been a former agent of Direction Générale La Sécurité Extérieure. That's the, uh, that's the French CIA. But of course, that agent's name would also be Pierre. The gist is also produced by Mary Wilson. Yeah, right. Mary Wilson. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. His methods and tactics are largely unknown. Apart from his having contracted with a shadowy extra-government cabal named Dark Orb. Dark Orb, a subsidiary of the Delphic Group. And now a proud part of Build-A-Bear Workshop. The gist. I was in the store the other day and they were selling a Twix Santa next to a Snicker tree. But you know what? I'm holding out for Kit Kat Jesus. Kit Kat Jesus, I'm waiting for you. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.